BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Roundtable, our chance to look back at the big stories of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. Even with both the House and Senate out of town this week, there was still a lot of action on several fronts. On infrastructure, it may be a bipartisan bill, but 13 House Republicans who voted for it are being pilloried by their fellow Republicans. So what happens next? On Build Back Better, Speaker Pelosi promised to vote on it this next week. Will it get any Republican votes at all, or will it even get enough Democratic votes? On Donald Trump, he lost another big battle in the courts this week, but then won back a little delay from the appellate panel. Are his efforts to, de- to deny the legitimacy of the last election finally running out of gas? And on the Republican Party front, Chris Christie fired a shot across Donald Trump's bow this week. Will he dare challenge Trump in 2024? Okay, let's look for some answers from today's panel. Sabrina Siddiqui back with us, White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Hi, Sabrina. Hello, hello. Igor Babish, congressional correspondent for HuffPost. Hello, Igor. Hey, Bill. And Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor for NBC News Digital. Hey, Ginger. Hello. There we go. Good to have you with us. Okay, today is the closing day of the big Glasgow Summit on on climate change. 197 countries participated. A big U.S. presence from the President of the United States to his climate envoy, John Kerry, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, several members of the uh, Senate and the House of Representatives there as well. Overall, Sabrina, uh, maybe it's a little too early to ask, but uh, anything accomplished? Well, I think for the United States, it was really an opportunity to demonstrate that there is once again a more serious commitment from the top when it comes to tackling climate change and filling the void that was left under the Trump administration. Um, You know, there is a new uh, agreement that was just unveiled by the United States and China this week, or two of the world's largest emitters of carbon dioxide, in fact, the world's two largest emitters of carbon dioxide, to ramp up cooperation tackling climate change. And, you know, that would include cutting methane emissions, phasing out coal consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously, Biden has been back himself for just over a week, but he um, was sort of apologizing, which is rare for any U.S. president, uh, for his predecessor having pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, which, of course, uh, he has reengaged in uh, since taking office. And then he was also promoting uh, some of the climate initiatives that are in the um, Build Back Better plan, which, of course, is not yet law, but more of a right. sign, again, of the of the U.S. commitment toward uh, dealing with the issue. So it's more about reasserting, I think, U.S. leadership on the global stage. Just one question moving forward is, have they been able to restore trust? 
Because mm-hmm. one um, challenge that we've seen in the international community is Biden still has a lot of work to do when it comes to making up ground for the Trump administration. And one thing that the Trump administration sh- demonstrated is anything that Biden does can simply be undone potentially three years from now, four years from now, if someone else takes office. And I think that's going to be an ongoing question that the U.S. will have to contend with uh, in the long term. Ginger, how does it play back here at home? Uh, climate change... Um, you know, obviously the White House and Biden had their look on the domestic political scene when they made such a big presence there. Is it a winning issue at home? I think it's a very complicated issue at home, and it's a complicated issue for Democrats particularly and Republicans. I mean, we're really seeing division in the parties about how this issue should be approached and how they should talk about it. Um, There is a growing faction of Republicans who think that climate is a big issue and they need to be talking about it and they need to be doing something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But Democrats can't get on the same page when you look at Joe Manchin and then you look at the progressive wing. And really, I think what's often missed here is that Manchin and um, the left flank of his party would do many of the same policies. They would just like to not call them the same things, <laughs> right? Like Manchin's great with renewables. He's great with job programs that are focused on renewables. He's great with transitions. He would just like you to not call them climate provisions. Same thing with Cassidy in, in Louisiana. He talks about coastal protection and erosion problems. He would probably rather you not call them climate provisions. Um, but that's tricky for the left who promised their voters that they were going to do things for climate. And if they're not calling them climate provisions, their voters are going to come back and think that they didn't deliver um, on some of their biggest campaign promises. So it's really left that Democratic Party in a bind about how they talk about climate. Yeah. Well, Igor, it may all come to a head this week uh, if Nancy Pelosi has her way with a vote on the Build Back Better bill. Uh, Former New York mayor and climatologist uh, Mike Bloomberg is out with a letter to Democratic centrist Democrats in the House saying you got to vote for this bill because of the climate change provision. So will Glasgow sort of give a little push, a little oomph to the Build Back Better bill? Well, I'm I'm not sure how much juice uh, Michael Bloomberg has anymore. uh, (laughs) Good point. Given his flaming out. But, uh, you know, it's it's notable that he's pushing for it. I think what the centrists and moderates want to see now is uh, "Quote unquote" fiscal information from the congressional congressional budget office, the the scorekeeper, Congress's scorekeeper on major bills, um, and once they get that, they they are saying that they're ready to move forward and, and vote for this bill. We don't know when that information is going to come out. It takes a while to score a bill of this size. There's a lot of tax and spending policies inside of it, so that's what we're looking for. And uh, you know, they said that they're going to they're going to vote for it by November fifteenth. At this point, I don't. I don't see, I'm a little skeptical that, about that timeline, um, but we'll see what uh, CBO comes out with. But, uh, but Igor, so who's the, um, who's the biggest threat here to passage or who's the biggest obstacle? Is it the centrist who think it may be too expensive or the progressives who don't think it goes far enough or it's not big enough? Well, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi has only a, a three-vote majority to deal with, and and at this point, any any member is an obstacle who who uh, voices uh, objections. Yeah, right. But at the moment, you have a, a sizable group of moderates who are saying we want to see a score uh, before we vote on this thing. So at the moment, they are uh, the, the major obstacle for her. Uh, and will we see that score this week? Do we know from the CBO? 
Uh, I, I really doubt it. Uh, I'd say next week the earliest, but even even at that that date, I'm skeptical. Yeah, you okay. know, Bill, the CBO yes. said that um, they can't give a definitive date for when yeah, that's the what final I cost estimate, and that could really push the timetable back for when the House can hold a final vote. Um, especially because, to Igor's point, this is something that's key to moderates ahead of um, you know lending their support to this package, and then of course. There's a separate issue where House Democrats have placed uh, certain provisions the late, back in the latest version of the bill. I think it's closer. It's back to roughly uh, $2 trillion mm-hmm. as, as opposed to the $1.75 trillion framework that President Biden had unveiled before leaving for his foreign trip. Um, so once it goes over to the Senate, we still have reservations from Senator Joe Manchin. Um, and, and also this, you know, I, the, the latest what you're hearing from Joe Manchin is that because of persistent inflation, um, that's now becoming his latest uh, source of uh, reservation in terms of uh, moving forward on this bill, potentially not wanting to spend on uh, more money at a time when inflation is still high, even though most economists say that there's no link between the two. Right. Okay. So a little breaking news uh, t- on this uh, Friday morning as we start our roundtable, and that is uh, Jonathan Carl, uh, political director for ABC News, is out with a new book about the last year of the Trump administration. It's called Betrayal. Uh, like any good author, he saves a little, uh, a few juicy tidbits for uh, to be released right before publication to make news, and he did this morning when he released a little audio of an interview that uh, Jonathan Carl uh, conducted with President Trump, former president, back in Mar-a-Lago back in March, where the former president defends supporters who were at the Capitol on January 6th chanting, hang Mike Pence. It's a little long, but here is a little um, clip of that interview. Were you worried about him during that, that siege? Were you worried about no, his safety? No, I thought he was well protected, and I, I had heard that he was in good shape. Mm-hmm. No, because uh, I had heard he was in very good shape. But, but no, you I heard those chants. That was terrible. I mean, was, you know, the... He could have... Well, the people were very angry. They were saying, hang my Because it's, it's common sense, John. It's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you... If you know a vote is fraudulent... Right. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? All right, Igor, you were there. He took the famous video of the traitors or whatever chanting, hang Mike Pence. And Donald Trump defends him. Yeah, seems like uh, fun times ahead for Mike Pence's presidential vote. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say. How does this how does this float with the Republican Party, the people you cover in Congress? I mean, they're going to do the exact same thing they have been doing, which is, uh, you know, uh, shy away from it and try to ignore it as best as they can and um you know uh, <laughs> just uh go home take their take their ball and go home and try to deal with it and win their majority um i mean listening to this and it's you know he's it, this isn't the first time he said this it's it's constant he's releasing these statements night after night calling the real insurrection uh the election uh, you know on, in november rather than january 6th so it's really just poisonous talk, and I'm I'm really worried that it it could lead to more January sixth, um, and that that the violence did, did not end that day. So Ginger, have we gotten to the point where uh, you can actually advocate a lynching of the vice president of the United States by the president of the United States, and nobody gives a damn? 
I mean, I think the thing that Trump is saying is that they were angry, but they their threats were empty, right? That they weren't actually going to do that. So then it's fine that they wanted to do it because they couldn't actually get to Mike Pence. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of a, a, a justification like, oh, you went to kill someone, but you didn't know that they were wearing a bulletproof vest. So it, it's fine. No, no matter. Um, I think really what we're seeing and um, I, like you were, was there that day. So, you know, for us, it was a lived experience. We know exactly what happened. Um, it is, it is mind boggling to watch the way that it, the descriptions and characterizations of it have been changed over time. Um, that we as a nation seem to not be able to agree on some very basic sets of facts about what happened that day, why they those people were there and what they were trying to do. Uh, and what they were trying to do was overturn um, a certified election um, and, and stop um, President Trump from being defeated using violence um, after having failed at the ballot box. And so I, I think that it's not going to get better, right? We're not like Trump has proven that he's not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, as my colleague John Allen wrote this week, you know, he's running for, for re-election. That's clear. Uh, it's unclear if he's going to stop running for re-election at any point, but he is. Um, and as a result, what we see is Trump um, just stoking these fires and no one, no one putting them out. Well, um, maybe somebody, uh, and that person might be Chris Christie, uh, who this week um, gave an interview with Mike Allen uh, in Axios, where uh, he clearly is moving around the country. He's clearly trying to put some distance between himself and Donald Trump, even though he was the one of the first Trump acolytes in 2016, we all remember. Uh, but here's Chris Christie saying, uh, there's one big difference between me and Donald Trump. I'm not going to get into a, a back and forth with Donald Trump, but what I will say is this. When I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. Um, I'm happy to have that comparison stand up because that's the one that really matters. Whoa, Sabrina, that's a declaration of war, no? <laughs> Well, bringing up the fact that Trump lost is definitely about um, as, I think, as sensitive an issue for the former president um, as there is. And the only thing about Chris Christie has been on every side of this issue since, as you point out, 2016. Um, he was still along Trump's side in 2020. Oh, and yeah, then, of right. course, you know, he had a really bad case of coronavirus Um one of the outbreaks that had happened in Trump's inner circle. And that was one of the, um, you know, issues that began to, I guess, through which he began to see the light. Um, you know, he's, he's, he has a lot of tough words right now. We'll see what happens if Donald Trump is again, the Republican nominee in 2024, does he just fold and uh, fall back in line? And I think the other challenge here is that Chris Christie is sort of, the, an anomaly here. Um, the overwhelming majority of elected Republicans um, or even just national figures within the party are still very much supportive of former President Trump. And therefore, that's part. That's why you haven't really seen the party been able to fully distance themselves from the events of January 6th. They'd rather just move on and pretend it didn't happen, right? I mean, even Mike Pence, uh, because you, I just want to circle back to the audio, you know, there were people who were out for his blood, right? And it was his own 
boss, it was the president who had goaded those people into showing up at the Capitol, maybe not specifically telling them to threaten Mike Pence with violence, but he had singled out Mike Pence in that rally with uh, his supporters that uh, right before the insurrection, sort of just trying to put pressure on Pence not to certify the election. And and yet uh, Pence is now back to being on relatively good terms with Trump. You know, he's talked about how he what he said about January 6th and his relationship with Trump is that they just agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. And in a recent speech, he said he was still proud to have served in the Trump administration. So that just shows you, I think, uh, the extent of Trump's hold over the party. And I don't think Chris Christie is going to be able to change that. But of course, Can I, I don't- add something? Yeah, as please. A, as Go a ahead. former Christie beat reporter, followed uh, him around right. for a long time. <laughs> right? I, he was a U.S. attorney and he worked in the prosecutor's office before that. And I think he just innately has... Um, an opposition to what he feel views as lawbreaking or lawlessness. Um, it permeated so much of what he did as governor. Um, and we hear that when he talks about January 6th, people are breaking the law and there's just no excuse ever for breaking the law. And I think that that's part of what attracted him to Trump in the beginning, this sort of hard line on enforcement of things. Um, and I think that's what has made him be so critical of of Trump now. Um, he doesn't like rule breaking and he feels like Trump is encouraging rule breaking. Um, and he is politically astute, right? He can, he can sense the, the winds. I don't think that that means, um, he goes back. He has also been quite adept at, at staying quiet. Um, but I think he sort of became the poster child for Republicans who, once they realized Trump was going to happen, um, they got on board and then some of them stuck around and some of them left and some of them are still there. Um, but I think it's part of his personality, um, that really drove this defection more than anything else. Well, it is curious because we, we all remember uh, kind of building on what Sabrina said that Chris Christie was pushing for the job of attorney general. He wanted to be chief of staff. I mean, <laughs> it took him a while before he uh, was willing to break it off from Trump. Igor, I'm curious. I've heard from some other friends who cover the Hill that in private conversations with Republican members of Congress, Senate and House, they will privately tell you they hope Donald Trump is not the nominee in 2024, but they won't say it publicly. Have you had those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not a secret that they dislike him and they would rather he just shut up and go away. Uh, but they can't say so publicly because they'll lose their jobs. Um, and if I could just backtrack on Christie again, I mean, absolutely, he was, please. He was the, the Trump before Trump, I will say, in terms of being the loudmouth who would say whatever and, you know, shout at people. And I, I think that in that sense, you know, if he ends up on a debate stage with, with Trump, uh, in the 2024 primary, that could be interesting. Uh, you know, you'd have a scream off between these two loudmouths uh, who who had very similar brands when uh, when they were in office. Uh, it would be uh, our dream come true to see that for sure. <laughs> well, well, some Republicans may not have spoken, uh, not only spoke out, but they voted out of the Trump orbit when it came to the infrastructure bill. What's going to happen to them? That and more when we continue here with our panel today on the roundtable after a quick break here on the Bill Press pod. And we'll be back with Sabrina Siddiqui, Ginger Gibson, and Igor Bobbage in just a minute or so. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union under President Eric Dean. 
The members of the Iron Workers Union, men and women, about 500,000 strong, they're responsible for uh, just about every one of the iconic structures you see across the United States of America, building the Golden Gate Bridge and the St. Louis Arch, the Sears Tower in Chicago, and the new World Trade Center up in Manhattan. Uh, the sky's the limit, they say, and they prove it with their great work. We salute the men and women of the Iron Workers Union and thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. To learn more, check out their website at ironworkers.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on this Friday, uh, November 12, with today's roundtable. So Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, Igor Bombish from HuffPost, Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal. So 13 House Republicans last week broke ranks, voted for the so-called Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, or BIF. Uh, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had some tough words about what ought to happen to these 13 renegades. Here's Mark Meadows. These people voted for Joe Biden for an infrastructure bill that will clear the way for more socialist spending that, quite frankly, uh, gives Joe Biden a win. I, you know, I don't know how you can send a, a clearer message than saying, listen, uh, you know, obviously you're not on our team. We're going to give that leadership position to somebody else. Ginger, infrastructure used to be bipartisan, right? It is what? just, I mean, again, the things that we have evolved to, the notion that voting for a bill a policy bill, a spending bill that has long been bipartisan would be the equivalent of having voted to elect a person of the other party president. Um, I mean, that just poisons the legislative process more than it already is. Um, and and really just moves beyond even where we were in the, in the Trump administration. Democrats voted for Trump's criminal justice reform bill. Um, it was not 
treated by Democrats as a vote for Donald Trump for president. Um, it was treated as a place where they found common ground and they could get something done. Um, and it really is just an escalation of the polarization um, that we're seeing. I am, I, I guess I shouldn't say I'm surprised um, to see what we have in the, in the last week. You know, Representative Upton releasing audio really just vile audio of death threats, voicemails left in his office. Um, it is it is not what we have seen in modern history when it comes to how um, laws are made and how lawmakers are treated. Um, and really, you know, if you're, if you're any of us looking at the 2022 midterms and the real prospect that just based on a map, Republicans will take the House, at this point, you can't write a story that says that they will pass a single bill um, if the if they their leadership and their members are equating voting for anything that Biden would sign to voting for Biden. Um, I don't know how you get Congress to function at all. Yeah, so it's curious, Igor. While these the so many Republicans are going after the thirteen House Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill. Mitch McConnell spent the week down in Kentucky uh, moving around the state, talking about all the new things that are going to be built because of this bill. A very quick uh, Mitch McConnell comment. It's a godsend for Kentucky. It's a godsend for Kentucky, Igor. <laughs> they, they can't seem to get their story straight. Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not only McConnell. I mean, 19 Republicans in the Senate voted for this bill earlier this summer. Good point. Right. Um, and, you know, it wasn't only, you know, your Mitt Romney's and Susan Collins's. It was it was Trump loyalists as well in there. You know, Kevin Kramer, North Dakota, Jim Risch, Lindsey Graham, Chuck Grassley. I mean, you had you had a lot of members on board with this thing. And I think that, you know, given the time that had elapsed since it had passed in the Senate at the end of July until, you know, this past week, uh, Republicans realized that there was a good chance that the Build Back Better bill has a, a passage and they're convinced that now um, that Democrats are on board with this infrastructure bill, that that um, the Build Back Better bill has a better shot at passing. And I think that's why uh, you saw so much uh, consternation and uh, and uh, criticism hurled at these 13 House Republicans for, for getting on board with the infrastructure bill. So Sabrina, I guess the next challenge is going to be Monday, November 15th. Uh, the president is they're organizing a big signing ceremony for the infrastructure bill at the White House, where they uh, say it's going to be a bipartisan ceremony with Republicans and Democrats standing alongside of the president as he signs the bill. Do you think any Republicans will show up? It's possible. Um, <laughs> I think, like, you know, uh, well, Mitch McConnell is not going. We already know that. We know that. We know um, that. As, as, but one of the reasons why um, Joe Biden delayed the signing of the bill um, since it's, it passed, uh, you know, just over a week ago now, or a week ago today, is because um, of the because they wanted to be they wanted to have uh, by lawmakers there from both parties and kind of make a big show of it. Uh, but you could potentially see. Um, someone like Adam Kinzinger there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, he's, not, he's not running for re-election. Right. I, I mean, I, you know, I think that it, it, it just goes back to, you know, this, this broader conversation we're having around just how low the bar is, right? That it would be, 
a really big deal if there are Republicans, any Republicans standing at the White House next to Joe Biden while he signs this bill into law. Um, you know, the, the I know there's a big difference between um, Republicans voting for the infrastructure bill and Republicans who voted to impeach uh, former President Trump. But, you know, there's this very uh, intentional effort by Trump and his allies to primary or defeat uh, any of the Republicans who voted to impeach him. And I think that there's going to be similarly um, efforts by not not all Republicans, uh, but, but certainly not all Republican groups, but certainly some um, to also in some way punish those who supported the infrastructure bill. And mm-hmm. I think it will be an issue for, you know, the, whichever of those Republicans do seek reelection, I think it'll be an issue for them in their primaries. And that this is how polarizing the climate is right now. And especially, I think, the Biden presidency because of the climate that preceded um, him taking office. Uh, just, the, just you know, it's it's sort of seen um, as this big act of, you, you're effectively seen as a traitor, for lack of a better word, if right. you do anything really that, that reflects well, some kind of support for Joe Biden. Well, that's a word that they're throwing around too, particularly about the 13 uh, House Republicans. And Ginger, if we didn't see... Um, well, we saw 19 senators, as Igor pointed out, 13 House Republicans vote for the infrastructure bill, which used to be something that Democrats and Republicans all supported across the board. But if we saw those Republicans break ranks on the infrastructure bill, uh, we probably will see, would you safely say, zero Republicans in the House or the Senate vote for the Build Back Better bill. Yeah, that's going to be uh, highly likely zero. Um, I would be surprised. Uh, maybe... Uh, I, I would think no. I mean, I, I think that's also clear here is that the Build Back Better bill, I mean, infrastructure has long been a bipartisan issue. Creating right. a national government system for um, paid family leave is an ideological divide. Republicans believe this is a function of the private sector. They're doing it right now. It should continue to be a function of the private sector and that the government should figure out how to support that function and not replace it. Um, and that goes for a lot of the provisions of this bill. I mean, there is a, a legitimate ideological philosophical divide between the parties on pieces, big pieces of that legislation. And so um, it's not just sort of like partisan camps there. I think that it is legitimately um, a division of what they think the federal government should be doing and their vision for the federal government. Um, And I think also the like sort of the back and forth between Democrats and the shrinking of the bill have made us all think that it's like some now small piece of legislation. It's not. It's huge and it's substantive. Uh, When the speaker calls it transformative, it could very well be um, a real moment in history about what the U.S. federal government does and its function. Um, And so it's not surprising that Republicans wouldn't support it. Um, I think where we have to start to wonder, though, is the debt ceiling, um, the government funding runs out on December 3rd, they have to fund the government. Um, Those kind of things, if they start becoming uh, partisan fights that voting for them is equivalent to reelecting Joe Biden, um, we're going to have some real problems and they're going to have some real issues getting some things done. Yeah. So Igor, let's circle back to the House. There's another little bit of breaking news on this Friday, which is uh, that the uh, House Select Committee has told former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows he has until today, this Friday, uh, to basically put up or shut up uh, he's to uh, comply with their subpoena and agree to testify, or they may find him in criminal contempt of Congress, as they did with Steve Bannon. Um, Jerry, Congressman Jerry Connolly uh, this week said, um, if 
the Justice Department doesn't follow through with their criminal contempt charges, that maybe Congress ought to step up and go after these people uh, itself. Here's a Congressman Connolly. I, I do, because I think the Justice Department takes too long, and I think the courts take too long. And meanwhile, we need to be getting things done in real time. And we can't rely on the courts to enforce our subpoena. What's going to happen, Igor? Well, you know, at this point, I don't really see Mark Meadows uh, complying with, with the subpoena. And I think, I, that, think that's, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, broadly, I think it's an effort to stonewall this entire committee and, and their search for documents, um, you know, tie it up in the courts. And obviously, I think it's probably it's likely going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And if it does. Um, that won't be taken up uh, until next summer, uh, next fall. And by that time, um, you know, if the Democrats lose the House, which look right now looks likely they're going to lose control of this committee and uh, uh, the, the case itself might be dropped. So I, I think it's a race against time to try to, you know, if if the Department of Justice doesn't weigh in here, um, they're going to try to try to go after some of these people who are not uh, responding to subpoenas on their own. Um, obviously, uh, I don't. I don't think. I don't believe that a, mem- a former member of Congress has ever been held in contempt. So it's a little bit of an unprecedented situation. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that uh, Congress does has its own inherent um, contempt power, but that that has never, you know, except for a couple times, I, I believe, hundreds of years ago, has never been uh, used. Uh, where where you know, uh, <laughs> you would essentially have a, a person who is resisting. Uh, in a congressional inquiry be held uh, in Congress itself, a little jail and underneath the, the building <laughs> um, to to force them to comply. Right. Uh, so, so, Sabrina, this is all, as, as Igor points out, this is all part of Trump's legal strategy, right? Which is he may he knows he may not win, but if the longer he can drag it out, the better, I guess. Pretty obvious, isn't it? Yes, of course. And, you know, I think this to Igor's point, this is going to be a protracted legal battle. Um, you had, of course, uh, federal appeals court block uh, the records of his calls, Trump's calls and activities related to January 6th from imminent release. That was after a lower court had found that Biden could waive um, Trump's claim to executive privilege and had um ordered had cleared the way effectively to hand over those documents to the house committee um so now you you know with this sort of temporary injunction from the u.s court of appeals um for the dc circuit uh that sort of has put this on hold once again um but they have fast-tracked oral arguments for a hearing on november 30th so you know this is just going to be um you know, a, a protracted legal battle that but does have very serious implications. I mean, one question is, of course, when does the committee finally get its hands on these documents? Um, how long does the process take? But it also has a you know significant legal uh, implications for I think the um, the reach of executive privilege. It could have obviously. Uh, it could have some bearing on on just the use of executive privilege down the road, as well as. Um, congressional subpoena powers and how um, how powerful uh, you know Congress is as a body when it comes to its investigative authority so there are I think longer uh, there are bigger picture big picture implications to this legal battle that extend beyond January 6th does it have any bearing on Trump and his political future I think the answer is no <laughs> because again the Republican base the majority of them actually think this election was stolen 
right? We already know where they stand. They already there. He would be the nominee tomorrow if it were up to them. So, I, and I don't think it's just not clear how much of the general public is still tuned into this matter. Um, it's more about accountability at this point than I think it is about the politics. Right. Uh, so, Ginger, I want to uh, close with just a, a quick look at uh, President Biden's standing today. Uh, you almost feel sometimes far, sorry for him and that he can't win for losing. I mean, he he, he gets the COVID thing behind us and, and then we're tied up in all the infighting over the infrastructure bill. Uh, we have a big jobs report last month of 531,000 new jobs. And then we find out there was 6% inflation. Um, uh, Biden is not ducking the fact that times are tough. In Baltimore the other day, he acknowledged uh, what consumers are feeling. Many people remain unsettled about the economy, and we all know why. They see higher prices. They go to the store or go online, and they can't find what they always want. So uh, inflation, is this something the White House is and should be concerned about and kind of undo all the uh, good things he's managed to do? They should be absolutely worried about it. In the famous words of James Carville, it's the economy stupid. Um, And I think that that's really what drives so many voters when you're out there talking to them and and has from (laughs) start of time until later. Um, You know, this is something that people know. Is their budget tighter? Can they not afford to buy their kids that extra toy at Christmas? Or can they not find that toy because of supply chain problems? And I think this is really a conundrum for for Biden in that um, inflation is global. I mean, you look, Japan announced yesterday that they had their largest inflation of 40 years, right? So it's it's not just something that's happening in the U.S. And that also means it's not something that just the U.S. can respond to. Um, but it becomes about messaging and they haven't found a way to tell the American public, we know you're hurting. We're doing everything we can. We promise we're not trying to add to the problem. Um, until they figure out a way, and maybe they can, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them uh, to convince people that they should, that, that their lives are where they want them to be, that their pocketbooks are where they want them to be, and that they should vote for them. Uh, and Igor, it all boils down to, we hear so much of, uh, and they're tracked daily, uh, the president's approval rating, the Biden polls we keep here are sinking, sinking. I checked this morning, the latest out there is a Yahoo News poll, which showed at this point, uh, Biden's approval rating is 42%. His disapproval rating is 51%. Uh, and Igor, I also checked the approval rating for Congress today is 15%, and the disapproval rate for Congress is 61%. Uh, <laughs> I believe that's uh, higher than, than normal recently. <laughs> for, for Congress or for, for Biden? For, for Congress, yeah. <laughs> for Congress. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly doesn't help that you have this protracted uh, – dysfunctional uh, four month, five months worth of fighting on Capitol Hill, where his party has been unable to do anything. Obviously, Afghanistan over the summer was a big hit um, for him. And and now the economy. And I think, as you've seen, rising gas prices, inflation, uh, voters are seeing all these headlines and and it makes them worry about, uh, you know, their financial footing and um, what what it's going to mean for their wages. Obviously, wages have risen, but not as much if you factor in inflation and you know democrats are hoping that their that their policies are going to make a difference here that you know them giving uh, hundreds of dollars to parents uh, uh, for child care will you know curb the cost that voters incur in other ways that if they pass this build back better bill they can reduce costs in other ways 
But, you know, it's kind of a roundabout way uh, to address some of these concerns for, for somebody who's shopping for items in a store and sees, you know, prices going up. So it's a it's a big bet they're making that this is going to make a difference uh, in the end if if these prices don't subside by by next year. Right. Uh, so the president has said, pass the Build Back Better bill and uh, we'll, we'll uh, take care of this problem. We'll see how that works out. Thank you so much, panelists, Sabrina Zadiki, Igor Bobbies, and Ginger Gibson for taking us through the events of this week. But we don't let you go. What was the one, without asking you, what was the one story this week that really caught your attention, stopped you in your tracks, your favorite story of the week? Ginger, start us off, please. Yeah, this is a great piece from ah. some of my colleagues. <laughs> I would never recommend a bad piece, but um, a great piece from some of my colleagues um, on NBCNews.com. Uh, Tyler Kincaid uh, wrote about um, an orphanage in Mississippi that was forcing teen moms to give up their children um, and basically taking them um, and giving them to families for the low price of $250 in the 1970s and 80s. And it documents the story of these people, these women who um, lost their children and what happened to them and how they um, really suffered um, at the hands of this organization. And it is a sad uh, but very compelling read um, called Stolen. Um, and I highly recommend um, if you if you needed maybe a, a good emotional story wow. uh, for your weekend to give it a read. Where do we find it? NBCnews.com. NBCnews.com. That's good. Igor Babish, how about you? Uh, so actually I had to dig deep for this one. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. And uh, <laughs> um, so in Israel, apparently, they off the coast of Israel, they found, uh, they excavated a, uh, a ring, an amethyst ring uh, that was barely dates back to 300s, 400s AD. Um, that apparently uh, was, is believed to be uh, a hangover cure for your <laughs> prehistoric uh hangovers uh you know the, the the amethyst purple amethyst was meant to ward off uh, and make you feel better uh, uh after a hard day of drinking wine all day so that um obviously means for me that i'm that i'm moving in israel i'm trying to find, well, <laughs> trying I was to find say, one of these rings does it work <laughs> Can you, I hope so you hope so you don't know yet huh yeah well uh, I love the fact that you had to dig deep for that story, Igor. Uh, the pun not lost on any of us. Uh, and we saved Sabrina until last because uh, she always has a heartwarming dog story. Uh, I always do. I know. This there time you go. it's actually about cats. Oh, okay. Because I decided to give Four cats their due for once. You know, I'm always talking about dogs. Four-legged creatures. There right. is a Yeah, they kind of get the short end of the stick. But there's a new study out of Japan um, that really shows uh, how the extent to which cats are not only able to hear their hearing capabilities, but also how connected they actually are to their owners. Because there's always this, this kind of this concept that cats are less interested in their owners um, compared with dogs. You know, it's sort of a generic generalization that they don't care mm -hmm. as much. Um, but actually this is um, this, this shows that they are, they can actually track um, their owner's location simply using audio cues. Mm. And they, what they did in this study is they, they played, you know, 
the voice of a, of a cat's owner from different locations. Um, and the cats were able to track, to track their owners based on just hearing those recordings um, and even differentiate between their owners and strangers. And it was a really interesting um, kind of evidence of the sort of socio-spatial cognition and cognition in cats. Um, they can even like, what they were able to see is that they, that cats can even mentally picture where others are just based on sounds alone. Um, so it was really interesting, really fascinating. I think in part because, you know, why I, I, the last, I think story I brought was about dogs and their intelligence and how, how much more, um, depth there is to, uh, to explore when it comes to the way that their mind works. And it turns out it's the same for cats and, and never say that cats don't love their owners as much as dogs because they, the, they can actually track their owners, uh, quote unquote, invisible presence using just their ears. We are happy to give equal credit and equal time to cats. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sabrina. Yeah, but uh, dogs are better, right? What's that? But dogs are better, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guys fight that out off the air. <laughs> uh, I just want to point out we had a, a great neighborhood cat, uh, JJ, here on Capitol Hill um, that uh, would come by our house for snacks every once in a while. And JJ could actually see me coming when I was walking down the street or hear my voice and come out of whatever garden it was in and follow me home to get its snack. So I can attest that that report is 100% accurate, at least when it comes to JJ, it was. Uh, well, my favorite story of the week goes back to um, uh, Ari Ginger, NBC News, Brian Williams announcing this week uh, that he was stepping down as a host of The Late Show, whatever it was called, on uh, MSNBC. Uh, I must admit, uh, I'm a big fan of Brian Williams, have always has been. Uh, unfortunately, had a little hiccup along the way. Uh, but I must say, I got a huge belly laugh out of Brian Williams and announcing his um, stepping down because he said he wanted to, quote, spend more time with my family. Now, uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Spin This. Um I was doing a show on uh, CNN at the time called The Spin Room with Tucker Carlson. And uh, in that book, Spin This, I identified spending more time with my family as the biggest example of bullshit spin that you ever hear from anybody. Uh, uh, Brian Williams spent 28 years at NBC. Uh, I must say, if he really wanted to spend more time with his family, uh, he shouldn't have taken that job or stayed in that job so long. And I think the fact is that when he goes back, if he, when he goes back now, he won't find any family left. So uh, I just want to point out that uh, whenever you hear people say, Cal Ripken said the same thing when he retired from the, from uh, the Orioles. Uh, I want to spend more time with my family. There's something else going on. And I think with Brian Williams, the fact was that M MSNBC did not renew his contract, was not going to renew his contract. He knew it, and so he stepped aside, not spending more time with my family. Whatever you do, don't use that spin if anything happens to you, because I don't think anybody believes it. All right, that's it for today. Hey, panelists, thank you so much. Sabrina, great to have you with us. Igor Babish from HuffPost, thank you. Igor and Ginger Gibson, NBC News Digital, thank you as well, Ginger. And thank you all for listening. Next Tuesday, a very special edition of the Bill Press Pod. We're going to be talking to Sarah Nelson the dynamic president of the Association of Flight Attendants about where the labor movement is today. Uh, and this is really time for workers to demanding better
better conditions, better support, better wages, uh, better working conditions. We'll talk to Sarah all about the workers market in the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meantime, have a great weekend. Stay strong, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.